0: I was not unmuted. <laughs> so, uh, while we're waiting for people to file in, uh, and uh, for those of you listening on the replay who perhaps have never heard of Casa before, uh, if you want to find out more about the Consumer Advocates for Smoke Free Alternatives Association, check out our website at CASAA.org. Uh, Tons of resources there to learn about tobacco harm reduction, ways to get involved as consumers uh, and uh, get in contact with your your lawmakers, policymakers, um, also from time to time uh, as they become available, uh, commenting on FDA regulations like the regulation comment period that just closed last night uh, for menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Uh and uh we also have merch at our website, so please check out the t-shirts we have for sale. Uh it's a great way to advocate in style. <clears throat> and um looks like we got folks filtering in here. So without further ado, we'll get to our very special guest for today's uh conversation. Uh it is my absolute privilege to introduce Mark Gunther. Um for those of you who do not know Mark, uh he is a veteran journalist, speaker, and writer. Uh, he's been reporting on business and sustainability for many years since 2015. He's been writing about foundations, nonprofits, and global development on his blog, Nonprofit Chronicles, uh, and most recently published an article at Filter called "The Half Truth Initiative," uh, looking, of course, at everybody's favorite anti-tobacco organization, the Truth Initiative, um, and uh, this is about how anti-smoke, how an anti-smoking group lost its way. <clears throat> uh, and so, uh, Mark, thank you for joining us. Um, you'll just need to, there you go, unmute. And uh, I know I, I pretty much read your profile off of the uh, 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 the Chronicle of Philanthropy website, but uh, I know some folks are, are probably interested, um, first of all, in your very <laughs> extensive background writing on, on um, uh, nonprofits, but how did you get involved in, in writing about um, the, the, the tobacco space. Yeah. And, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Alex, thank you. Yep. You sound great.
1: Great. Yeah. Just to amend the introduction a little bit, probably the best place to follow my work now, particularly the work about smoking and vaping is at medium. It's easy to find me over there. And the way I got into this story was through my work about philanthropy, uh, hearing about the work that Bloomberg Philanthropies was doing around vaping. Um, Ethan Nadelman, who you may know, the former head of the Drug Policy Alliance, uh, and I were having a conversation about something else, and he said, have you followed the vaping issue at all? I think Bloomberg is really uh, moving down the wrong path. And that was really what got me started. I'm trying to remember what year it was now. I guess it was the very end of 2019. I wrote a very long piece for the Chronicle of Philanthropy in the spring of 2020. And although I didn't really intend to stick with the story after writing that piece, uh, I just found I couldn't let it go. And so... Ever since then, I guess it's been about a year and a half, I've been trying to now and then dig into this issue of vaping and smoking and the role of the foundations and the role of nonprofits and the CDC and the FDA and all of that. So that's the history of it all.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I, I think that was uh, 2019 sounds about right. And, and I've been getting uh, email updates from the Chronicle of Philanthropy since. So um, I certainly brought one <laughs> reader to, to the, the publication. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in kind of prepping for, for our conversation today, I, I went back and, and uh, you participated at the Global Forum on Nicotine what a month ago, which seems like ages ago to me. Um, and uh, you know, I think one of the um, one of the really important questions was uh, about sort of the reach of, of your 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 investigation into to all of these uh, into the tobacco uh, organizations, um, anti tobacco organizations in the past 30 days. And even on the heels of, of this, uh, your your recent article about the truth initiative. Have you seen an increase in interest in in what you're reporting and, and is it breaking out of uh, kind of our 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 echo chamber? Yeah, that's a great question, and of course, I hope it is breaking out of the echo chamber.
1: I can say a couple of things. Uh, I did give a talk at that um, conference in Poland, which unfortunately I wasn't able to attend, and I posted that talk. It's pretty long up on medium the same week and somewhat to my surprise it really became by far the most read uh, story that i've written for medium and i've been writing for them for three or four years now i mean by a pretty big margin so that was in the tens of thousands of people i think that's bigger than the vaping community on twitter but i don't know Um, So that was encouraging. And in terms of this most recent piece about Truth Initiative, which was also quite a long piece, more than 3,000 words took some time to report, and I'm very grateful to the people at Filter for helping to get it out there. Again, I don't quite know the details, but it's my understanding that some of the more thoughtful and respected people in the public health community, you know, who have had relationships with Truth Initiative and their board members in the past are getting the story in front of the Truth Initiative board. I think my bigger goal really in some ways is to try to influence some of my fellow reporters. And I have not, (laughs) from reading the coverage in The New York Times and hearing things occasionally on NPR, um, I don't see it piercing through there, and I don't know why it hasn't.
0: Yeah, that's I I I I, I'm stopping short of asking the question why, but it seems, uh, you know, for as long as I've been involved in this, which is really since probably late 2013. Uh, it seems that that the journalists, of course, they're accountable to an editor somewhere, and 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 we all hope, of, of course, that uh, news outlets are not present are, are are presenting news in an objective way. But it, it does seem as though there is, um, for lack of a better term, sort of a convenient narrative that that journalists can subscribe to, and it's it's simply you know tobacco bad, and there doesn't seem to be much questioning there. Um, when it comes to actually getting, uh, you know, the voices of consumers, for example, or the voices of, of people who have, um, left the truth initiative, David Abrams, for example, um, getting those voices in front of journalists is, is this a matter of, of it's kind of this, this unchecked influence that people like Michael Bloomberg wield, um, or is it, is it just that the journalists have, have accepted as I, as I've as I sort of opined, this convenient narrative. Um, is, there, is there still some journalistic integrity out there, or are people just captured by convenience?
1: So I think there is integrity, but I also do think convenience, as you put it, plays a role. If I'm reporting on this, and particularly if I'm new to the issue, and a lot of people are new because beats change and sometimes it's just general assignment reporters who are asked to write about say the menthol band to pick one example um it is so easy to find the anti-smoking anti-vaping voices i mean campaign for tobacco-free kids is very well known they've been a player in washington i think since maybe the 70s but if not certainly in the last 30 years that goes back to the 90s it's probably more like the 90s um you know truth initiative has a big budget and a a brand even pave uh the parents group i think has a significant amount of money behind it and um again they're very easy to find i think it's harder to know who is representing the quote unquote other side I mean, I'm still kind of confused about, I mean, I sort of know, but there's CASA and then there's the, you know, Manufacturers Association. I don't even know if there's like a retail association for vape shops, but the the folks representing the vapers, the former smokers, are not well-organized or well-coordinated or well-funded. And so I do think their voices um just are not heard. And meantime, there are a lot of great academics out there who've worked in this field for many years and whose integrity and credentials are completely impeccable. You know, I'm thinking about people like, you know, David Abrams and Ray Niora who came out of truth. Um, I mean, there are many more. I don't want to start naming names because I'll I'll leave someone out. Ken Warner at the University of Michigan has done a great job. And my apologies, I'm in an apartment and someone is constructing next door. So you probably hear that hammering. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, but in any event, these folks are professors and, you know, they're not self-promoters. And... F- to find them takes just a little extra care and effort. And I think reporters who are on deadline and in a hurry, you know, can easily tell the story about how smoking is bad and now vaping is sort of like smoking. And so that's probably not very good either. And leave it at that. It's, it's, I really sound like I'm making an excuse for it and I'm not. Um, it's, it's not right. It's not good journalism. It's lazy. And particularly for those reporters who have been on the beat for more than three months, say, they really should know better. I think The, the Times in particular has, has a tremendous amount of influence and has really um, not been helpful in terms of putting the full story before the public.
0: Yeah, agreed. And I, you know, I think it, it, it's sort of talking about how, um, you know, the, the, the consumer side, CASA, uh and, uh, you know, how the, the sort of independent side of the industry, we, we do make this distinction between the independent vaping industry and, and what people uh, believe, of, you know, think of as, as big tobacco. Um, those are two sort of very different things. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, there is sort of this disorganization and, and, and to be perfectly honest, we are a bunch of amateurs. Um, you know, everybody who not everybody, but uh, I think most people who got involved with the, the industry themselves, uh, you know, they they quit a career to go work in this space because they felt like they were doing good. Uh, maybe they didn't have a lot of experience running their own business prior to this. Uh, for those of us at Casa, Excuse me. Um, You know, uh, uh, some of us had a little bit of experience, maybe with advocacy or activism. uh, But, uh, you know, we are coming at this really with a passion to uh, promote safer alternatives to people. And it's this kind of level of amateurism and disorganization that it seems absolutely counter to the narrative that this whole thing has been brought about by big tobacco companies in order to hook kids Um, you know, maybe that in and of itself is a story that deserves a bit more coverage. Um, and I, I guess I could see, you know, if you are a beat reporter or, or someone walking into this with some preconceptions, um, that, that, you know, stories like ours are, are sort of overlooked and and we are pretty routinely depending on the outlet dismissed as a, a front group for industry. Um. So,
1: yeah. I mean, I think I've said this to other people. I think I've I've talked to um, Clive Bates a little bit about this, and maybe Ken Warner as well. I don't remember, but it seems to me what the quote other side of the story, that is the harm reduction side of the story, needs is some credible, independent voice with money um, speaking on its behalf. Now. It would be okay, I think, if some of that money – well, I don't know how to, how how it should be organized. But, I mean, it's a little uh, surprising to me that some foundations that are, I would say, more science-based um, have not stepped up to say, gee, you know, vaping seems like a way to actually – save lives and help people quit smoking maybe we can help some of the vaping advocates tell their story um i'm trying to remember my i'm uh alex i'm well past retirement age so my recall is not what it should be but there was recently a study circulating on twitter that uh demonstrated in some way, some way, shape or form, the benefits of vaping. And I noted that one of the funders was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is a huge funder around issues of health. I think they have given some money to groups that oppose vaping. I mean, it really would not be fully out of character for someone like that to say, hey, the science is changing. We can see that um, you know, perhaps paradoxically, uh, vaping can actually be a life-saving technology. Maybe we should do some of our own research on that, and then put some of our resources behind getting that resource, getting that research in front of opinion makers, influencers, reporters, and that's that's a key role of foundations. And if Robert Wood Johnson were to call. I think her name is Christina Jewett from the New York Times or even to call, you know, the congressman from Illinois who's on the warpath about this or Dick Durbin in the Senate and say, can we meet with you and just show you, you know, what we've learned? I think I I may be wrong, but I think that would be hard for folks like that to ignore. I, I don't know that you could persuade campaign for tobacco-free kids to pull back. I don't know that you could persuade Truth Initiative to pull back. The only way to do that really would be to find ways to interact with their board. But I do think some of the politicians, particularly on the Democratic side, and the reporters would be, you know, their minds can be changed. I don't think they are Stuck in a kind of religious sense or you know ideological sense on one side of the debate. Maybe I'm being a little naive there, but I don't think
2: so. Can, well, you, no. can you can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'm using new headphones and I, would, I wanted to make sure my mic worked. Just wanted to interject on that point. um When I first started talking with with Ethan Nadelman about this subject in like I think it was 2018 2019 he basically said the same thing. And, and we all agree, we need like that independent group that has some money behind them, but you know, after he went out and I think he kind of spread the word and kind of, you know, with his contacts and, and, uh, you know, uh, talked around to see if uh, anybody would be interested. It just, it's such a toxic subject right now that no one's willing to put their neck out for. I mean, look at how people are, tr- look how FDA was treated just for, you know, with, by, uh, people like Durbin and, and uh, others just for, uh, you know, uh, authorizing a few e-cigs or potentially authorizing the Juul. It So I think these groups, they see that and they see like how, cancerous this subject could be for them and how tough, you know, what kind of uh, pushback they're going to get. And they, no one's willing to put, stick their neck out yet. And I, I don't think they will until it becomes a sexier subject. And by that, I mean, people getting thrown in prison.
1: Um, I don't know if I agree in the sense that, yes, I think Ethan has been banging at this door for a while and and Clive may have as well, but, um, I do think you know, maybe Robert Wood Johnson would be hard. I just just actually read something today about how, you know, they support harm reduction in the, in the drug arena, but they haven't actually put any money behind uh, safe needle spaces. But they may be a little on the conservative side. But I think of foundations like the Arnold Foundation down in Texas, where its founder, John Arnold, is a very data-based guy, think about the Open Philanthropy Project on the West Coast, which is Facebook money, uh, also very, um, I think, science-based. I think as the evidence mounts, I think about things like the, the essay of, again, timing. Was it last fall by all the presidents of the Society for Tobacco and Nicotine Research that kind of took an overview of all of it and came out with a pretty I thought, you know, it was nuanced, but I think it ended up being a pro vaping position. Certainly, very different from where the prohibitionists are. I do think some of those folks might do it. And, and the other thing is, this may may be really a long shot, but you know, it, I maybe there is some way of. The industry using its money, by that I really mean the bigger players in the industry using their money to to get the story out. I mean, I'm not a marketing person. I'm not a PR person, so I don't know how. And I probably shouldn't even be giving anyone advice because I want to stay more or less independent on this. But um, I don't know. I just feel like your side of the story, for whatever reason, has not gotten out there I I, you know I meet people in my like regular life and tell them I'm writing about this and it's like oh yeah I was so upset when my son started vaping in college and I sort of say don't be so upset it's better than a lot of other things he could have been doing
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, we've we've sort of uh, set up a bit of a kind of a segue here back to your your article on Truth Initiative. Um, Yeah, good. One of the one of the things that um, I I think a lot of us experienced when we first got involved in this was, you know, uh, trying the products, quitting smoking somewhat miraculously and thinking to ourselves, wow all of the public health groups are going to be supportive of this. And then sort of, you know, perusing the Internet, reading news articles and seeing attacks on access to these safer products and being somewhat shocked that cancer heart and lung and, of, of course, Truth Initiative and Campaign for Tobacco for Kids are coming at these products, you know, full court press. Um, and so it, it it's we have had this perception that, Tobacco harm reduction is the antidote for, uh, you know, the early deaths from smoking. Uh, We've experienced this in our own lives and expect that these organizations would have come on board. And I think you sort of talk about that in the article that, you know, when the scientists were in control of the the mission, it seems like harm reduction would be something that they would have promoted. But that all changed at some point without kind of rereading the article. Could you kind of explain what changed the truth initiative and campaign uh, and, and, and uh, to sort of cause this, what I, I have written down as, as mission creep? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened
1: at Truth Commission is Cheryl Hilton, who was a public health person, um, left and they had to make a decision about who to bring in uh, to run the place. And they hired Robin Koval, who came out of the world of advertising and marketing, which is logical in a sense, because Truth Initiative, formerly American Legacy Foundation, was and is fundamentally a a messaging organization. But she didn't and maybe even doesn't know the science of tobacco and harm reduction. And I think the The culprit here to use, I I don't know if that's the right word. I think the most powerful voice on tobacco, probably in America, is Matt Myers. And so just to tell you a little bit about my own process, I mean, I wrote the very long piece about Bloomberg in the spring of 2020. Then I had some time, and so I did a long piece about Stan Blantz, very long, that I thought, would at the very minimum mean he's, you know, suggests that he's not a credible source on these issues. Of course, he is still getting quoted in the New York Times, somewhat to my amazement. And then I wrote this third rather long piece on truth. So I've tried to look at the institutions, the scientists that are um, driving this prohibitionist mindset in a semi-systematic way, and I think the the story left to be written is really a story about Matt Myers and tobacco-free kids because from what I've learned, um, the cancer and lung and heart associations are not especially independent in their thinking and analysis. To some degree, they've deferred to Matt Myers. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe some of their funding is actually from bloomberg but via matt myers so that gives him some some influence and i guess if there's one person who who could theoretically shift this and get these groups out of their current lockstep position i don't expect this to happen but but i think he is the the key guy here. And I think a close look at his record and what he's said in the past and what effect he's having now would be a story worth writing. And I do hope at some point to find the time and motivation uh, to do it. Uh, These things take a lot of time and a lot of motivation. And I don't want to make tobacco my full-time job or, I don't even want a full-time job, to be honest with you. So it's just a matter of figuring out when that rises to the top of the things I want to do.
0: Yeah, I will say uh, I, I have – this is the first first job I've had of, of this kind where I am behind a desk and focusing on, on this sort of single issue. I, I have always had more uh, work-with-your-hands kind of jobs. Um, so I can empathize completely with not wanting to make this your life uh, or a full-time job. Um, but uh, some other, other things that um, you had, had brought up uh, in the article, um, and, and I know that this, this a vein of this sort of featured prominently at, at your uh, talk at GFN um, is sort of acknowledging all of the quote-unquote good that, for, of course, specifically, Michael Bloomberg has done in other issue areas. Um, and even even the truth initiative credits itself. I, I I hope I'm not misrepresenting that, but a lot of the, their sort of reports are self-assessments on on the effectiveness of the programs that they're doing. And so one of the things uh, that they uh, sort of brag about on their website is, you know, giving uh, funding to. Um I I forget the wording, but I, I believe, you know, schools, um, certain organizations that deal with uh, vulnerable populations uh and uh that you know they give out X amount of money every year or have given out X amount of money um to support uh I don't know health. I, I I'm forgetting the way that they word it, but my my question is, you know, have you had an opportunity to look into what specifically Truth Initiative is funding and how effective those those programs actually are? Specifically, is that money just going to do things like lobby for policy changes like a campus wide smoking ban? Or are they funding actual programs like uh, uh, bolstering uh, mental health services or, you know, making sure the school nurse's office has all the resources that they need? Um, and 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 it, has there been an impartial assessment of the effectiveness of that funding? So I think the answer to your last question is no.
1: Um, I don't think there's been any independent look at what they're doing. And no, they are not uh, focused on the overall well-being or mental health of young people or adults for that matter. Uh, they are limited in terms of actual lobbying because of the kind of nonprofit they are. So um, they can't get involved in, you know, ballot initiatives or state legislature, you know, proposals to ban vaping. I think what they have done in terms of those grants is mostly things like, you know, smoke-free campus, etc. And and the the degree to which even they can take responsibility or credit for the overall decline in teen smoking is very questionable because so many other factors come into play. Um, and and honestly, I just don't really you know trust anything they've said in the last, I guess, at least five years. Just like I don't trust anything Stan Glantz has said, you know, in the last 10 years, because once you find that people are willing to distort science and willfully ignore evidence that contradicts what they are saying, to me, they've they've just lost their their credibility. Um, so, you know, if they say they're helping people quit vaping, I mean, I don't know if they are or aren't. Um I honestly don't think they're very effective judging by things like their social media following and you know how many retweets they get. That's a very imperfect way to judge them. But um, I've also heard from some insiders that they, they tried to, for example, pressure some other nonprofits – from taking any money from tobacco companies and the other nonprofits basically told them to forget about it, stay up, you know, stay out of our business. So, you know, they, I didn't get into this in my story, but you know, there's really no accountability there. Their money comes from the master settlement. They don't have to go out and raise it every year. Their salaries are extremely high by Washington nonprofit standards. And so, I think they can kind of go along in their merry way and no one is holding them accountable at all, which is a shame, but I don't see anything that can be done about that, as I said, other than <clears throat> trying to find some connection to their board to say, really stop, take a look, do a hard self-assessment, see if you're you know, doing as much good as you think or claim that you're doing.
0: Yeah. I uh, I, I want to take a moment. I know Matt's here. Jim was uh, hopefully going to join us. And I know Danielle's here. But before I move on, I wanted to make sure, um, give an opportunity for either of you guys to to chime in with questions or comments.
3: One question I did have. Um, hi, Mark. It's very nice to meet you, um, is essentially on the issue of funding. You know, I think it is, at least in the space that we at CASA are sort of familiar with, it is A very interesting phenomenon to us that, you know, what you said, that Truth Initiative, essentially initial funds were from MSA. And I think a lot of what they, you know, bring in now is based on investment, right? I think they invested a lot. Your article mentioned that they purchased like a building. I think that they like rent out. It's a lot of investment income and they are not, they don't do the level or they don't have to do the level of like fundraising and donation seeking that other nonprofits do And they're extremely independent in terms of their funding and not accountable to anyone. And I'm curious, you know, because, you know, we sort of consider you kind of the the nonprofit expert. How common is that in the larger scope of nonprofits uh, outside of, you know, tobacco control and like the health areas? Like, is that pretty normal or is that sort of odd?
1: No, it's extremely odd. And you're right. They don't do much. I don't really know if they do any fundraising. Um, They're living off their investments. And as you say, they have some real estate investments. Apparently, there have been discussions by the board uh, during that period of transition from Cheryl Hilton to Robin Koval about actually spending down the endowment. So they operate in a way more like a foundation than your conventional nonprofit. You know, the Ford Foundation got met you know, a big, big chunk of money many, many years ago from Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company. And now they have to decide how fast to spend it and who they're going to give it to. That's kind of the way truth initiative works. And there was some discussion about saying, well, let's put on a really big push and try and, you know, stop all new smokers from taking up cigarettes and then then we'll be gone. But the decision was made uh, to continue in perpetuity is the way the foundations put it. I don't know if they said that, but obviously the staff is not going to be in favor of spending the money in the next three years and putting themselves out of business. But that's the kind of thing that a responsible board of trustees um, should be doing.
0: Yeah, that actually, so the, the, what I kind of wanted to get to was um, this idea of, Uh, a a, a foundation or a, a, a nonprofit organization achieving its mission and, and winding down operations. And it's a conversation that we've had internally at Casa, you know, we like to hope there will be a future where, um, there isn't much of a need for a, a consumer advocacy group to get engaged at state, state and local policy uh, debates uh, and that, you know, perhaps in the future, the real need is for an organization like CASA to be maintained as an information resource. Um, a very minimal amount of, of effort and, and funding needed to do something like that certainly wouldn't have to do a whole lot of fundraising. But the organization is there. The the skeleton is there. Should something need to be fired back up and defend people's access, um, and obviously, you know, we we operate on a shoestring as it is. But um, the the thought, I think, and as you said, I think it's a very responsible thing to do is is, is imagine a world where um, we don't have to operate at the same level. So, in terms of other foundations and nonprofits, I mean, obviously, we are talking about the tobacco space, but um, is is there a, a, a way? Have there been? Are there examples of organizations that, uh, as I, for lack of a better term, have sort of achieved their mission uh, and then uh, scale things back and and either you know sort of cease to exist or exist in a in a in a very minimal minimal way? Uh, definitely, there are examples.
1: There's a couple of foundations that have spent down. I forget the name of it, but a. Very well known philanthropist, billionaire. I, uh, I don't remember the name of his foundation, but the guy was named Chuck Feeney. He ran all the sort of duty free airport shops all around the world. He had a big foundation, and at some point he said, I don't want this to be a bureaucracy. Let's just spend all the money in the next five or ten years. And, and they went away. And there, there are other smaller examples in the foundation world. Um, Even the uh, Gates Foundation, which is the biggest foundation by far out there with tens of billions of dollars in their charter, they are supposed to make themselves disappear, I believe, within the first 20 years after the death of Bill or Melinda Gates. So it's not unprecedented in foundations. It doesn't happen as often in nonprofits. Somehow they find, you know, new Missions, new problems to solve. It's a little, you know, not cool in my opinion. Um, but uh, you know, the, there is an obvious every institution, whether it's a government or company or nonprofits seems to have some incentive, not only to stay alive, but to grow if possible. And so in the nonprofit world, I, I can't think of examples of, say, like, you know, a disease-oriented foundation and someone found a cure and it went away, um, you know, in terms of something like, I mean, I, I've thought about it with regards to something like Human Rights Campaign, the the gay rights organization. Um, certainly, these days, gay people's rights are pretty solidly protected by Supreme Court decisions, but, you know, they've turn their attention to the trans community, et cetera. So not to pick on them, but I haven't seen many. I can't even think of one nonprofit that sort of said mission accomplished. We're going to go away. I'm sure they're out there, but I can't think of one right
0: now. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of that, at least specifically to specific to uh, the the tobacco organizations, um, anti-tobacco uh, uh, orgs. Um, I think it, there's been, I don't know necessarily if there's been calls to kind of give people an out, um, that, you know, the, the risk here is that if, if, if we on the tobacco harm reduction side of things are, are going too strong, uh, sort of towing the line of, of ad hominem attacks almost, um, uh, that, that, we're sort of forcing people to dig in their heels and uh, become, you know, even more entrenched in their ideology, uh, and so it, it's. I, I just have it in the back of my head that that there is this need to to give people an out so that they could back away and and maybe get closer to a mission accomplished kind of scenario.
3: It seems to me too that potentially the longer you know a particular cause has been going on the more, and this may sound a little cynical, but the more likely the people involved in it are to, you know, specialize their career in that. And then the concept of that, you know, cause going away or becoming unnecessary, perchance would leave them, you know, with all of this experience in, let's say, a very specialized arena like tobacco control. And then if that were to go away, you know, what else would they do? I understand that this does sound very cynical, but... That comes into my mind in terms of, you know, obviously on some level, they're probably interested in job security as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's just right.
2: That was basically what I was going to ask, too, just in a in a different way is, you know, is this just the norm with nonprofits where you got to constantly find a new enemy or, or a new cause? But it, it, And I, I don't think anyone's ever, you know, sitting in the back in a boardroom, you know, thinking, OK, what can we manufacture so we can keep the dough running in, even even if it's a issue that we shouldn't be dabbling with? I think they think they're doing the right thing, but the financial reasons have to play a part, you would think, in them you know with people are very good at talking themselves into things when when it fits their needs i guess is my point
1: uh matt i think that said it very well yeah i think you know at one point i believed like tobacco-free kids was going to get involved in the obesity issue maybe they still are again why they would do that i don't know but um but yeah it's uh it's it's hard to talk yourself out of a job
3: Truth has also dabbled, I don't know if they're still going or if they were waved off, but into the opioid issue. I don't know if uh, folks remember that, but they started getting involved in that. And I thought, oh, no, I hope, you know, the more seasoned people in that space wave them off and say, no, thank you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, although they might do more good dealing with opioids if they gave up on some of the things they're dealing with now. Who knows?
0: I'm not sure I I I I don't know how uh how wide the distribution was but I know in in New York at least uh, this was I think a couple of years ago um there were some truth initiative ads um talking about uh opioids and they were actually very it, I to me it seemed very stigmatizing and it was a lot of sort of not even once and and they had sort of the the Uh, the actor portraying a testimonial of someone who went in for a procedure was prescribed an opioid painkiller and and in a blink of an eye, they were, uh, they were uh, using uh, street drugs. Uh, They were addicted. Uh, And and so it was, it was a very just kind of, it, 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 It did not put the focus on the person and what issues they may be facing and and why they may be continuing to use a a painkiller. And instead, it seemed to imply one of the things the Truth Initiative and a lot of these campaigns do very well is by innuendo. Um, suggesting all of these outrageous harms and, and pu- sort of putting that at the feet of the pharmaceutical companies, which of course is in service of, of suing the pharmaceutical companies for over prescribing uh, the, the opioid painkillers, uh, of course ignoring uh, you know root causes of, of the, the opioid poisoning crisis, um, which is of course our overly oppressive racist drug laws in the United States. Um, But uh, yeah, those, those ads were, and I, 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 I believe you're also in, in New York, correct, Mark? Uh, No, I'm actually
1: in a uh, sedate suburb of Washington, DC,
0: Bethesda, (laughs) Maryland. So (laughs) even better, hopefully you are out out of the reach of these horrible ads. But, um, but yeah, that, that was just an example of, it was, it was like watching all the things that we've seen in tobacco translated into the uh the drug poisoning crisis um you know with without even really considering um you know what we are all sort of fighting against here which is you know making sure that the 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 people who are using these these products we're using these drugs are are the focus of things and not trying to invent another boogeyman to go after Um, that's
1: yeah absolutely and i think that's maybe The story that that is waiting to be told, not by me, but just in general, which is, you know, as these flavor bans continue to be in effect in some states and cities and as products are not available and as vape shops close, if indeed they are closing, seems to me there should be a story to be told out there of the people both in you know sort of economic terms and in health terms, who are the like, the victim isn't quite the right word, but I mean the people who are being hurt by this prohibitionist drive. I, those are the people whose voices don't seem to make their way out of you know vaping Twitter, and I think that would that would be helpful. And as I think either Alex, I think you said this too, maybe it was Matt. um, The other story that needs to be told is, are people now starting to be arrested for selling or using vapes in places where you're, you know, where they are more or less outlawed? Or are we simply just seeing an underground uh, economy, you know, untaxed and unregulated, booming and not booming, thriving, in places you know i believe there are four states that have outlawed at least flavored vapes there's a big initiative big vote coming in california this fall i mean those seem like newsworthy interesting stories that should be getting out there
0: yeah and i always i, I always wonder and i i'm always concerned that you know, a, a barrier to stories like that. Getting any sympathy is sort of this legacy attitude we have towards substance use, which is, you know, if you are using drugs, if you're selling or buying drugs and, and I'm throwing nicotine into this because it, it is being treated like, um, other illicit drugs, at least in, uh, in New York state and Massachusetts, in New Jersey, Rhode Island, um, and, and potentially soon to be California, certainly certain municipalities in California. Um, but um, that, you know, if you are caught doing any of those things, you sort of get what you deserve. Uh, and that's that sort of mass societal uh, moral judgment that I think we're all sort of subject to whether we like it or not. Uh, and so it, it seems from from the from the outset that there, there may not be a whole lot of sympathy to be garnered for folks like us. Um, and, and I don't exactly know how to go about making that change um without millions of dollars in funding um but uh i i I think you know we're all we're all unfortunately uh, the similar opinion that things are going to have to get a lot worse before they get better
2: and they've looked to discredit us at every pass. I mean, even on Twitter, you know, they've done studies trying to prove that we're all bots and they've uh, called us anecdotes for as long as I've been been around this industry. And when they do give give us a platform, um, you know, myself and some others and some other uh, consumers, business owners have, have been interviewed quite a few times for, for uh, different publications. They always put you up against, you know, a, a scientist and the whole way they frame the article is like, Here's Joe Schmo saying one thing. Here's this scientist with 30 years of experience and all these medals and awards, you know, saying saying the other thing. So it's it's even when they let you tell your story, they still set it up to fail, it feels like. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I can't really speak to that, 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 that yeah, that that's not helpful, obviously.
0: Well, we're we're sort of coming up on the last uh, ten or twelve minutes here, and I know your time is precious, Mark. And, and thank you again for joining us. Um, and and I I guess maybe I it, it's I, I'm I'm hoping to get some some robust discussion on this, but I, I don't know how much farther we can go with it. But we did talk about accountability and the fact that uh, organizations like Truth Initiative that have millions and millions of dollars coming in every year. Um, in a way, can afford to not be held accountable. Um, in In the marketplace of ideas, though, I'm probably misusing that term. You know, it, it to me, it, it in, you know, reading your coverage of this and my sort of amateurish understanding of, of how all of this works, it feels daunting. It feels like an immovable object. Um, but I, I still do have some some faith in in the free market of ideas and that we can ultimately be more persuasive than, um, uh, the, the well-funded and glitzy glamorous organizations that are out there. Um, but when it comes to talking about accountability, I think uh, there, there is that tendency to look towards regulation. Is there any, is, is that a solution that, that at least in the United States, uh, perhaps other countries have done things to um, hold uh, massive nonprofit organizations in check. Um, it, it, are we left to duke this out in the media, or is there some way for government to get involved and 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 rein these folks in?
1: Oops, I was muted. I, I, no, I I don't think. Uh... I don't think there's any hope of uh, having government provide oversight of nonprofits, nor is that something I would want to see happen, Um, you know, depending on, you know, what, who's in charge. I'd hate to see that happen. I'd hate to see either, you know, one party or the other getting getting to a governor's mansion or to the White House and saying, now we're going to crack down on, quote, irresponsible nonprofits i think the only hope really is in the the media world and the political world and i do if i didn't believe that at some point the truth would carry the day i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing um even in the political arena you know it seems to me that um if you can get meetings with local legislators or your congressmen and sort of not tell your story, but also bring some, you know, so that you're not dismissed as an anecdote, bring something like, you know, the article in Science that's now probably five or six years old that was written by the deans of public health at uh, NYU and Emory and uh, Ohio State. I mean, a impressive five or six people basically said let's not go hog wild and ban vaping i'm paraphrasing or or bring the article by the people from the society for nicotine and tobacco research or bring my story about bloomberg or my story about truth initiative and say you know here you have distinguished scientists you have a reporter who had no axe to grind who's been doing reporting for many years for respected publications um, consider, just consider our side of the story here. And I, I do have some faith that one-on-one people can be persuaded, whether it's a, a congressional staff member or a state legislator or a board member of a nonprofit, someone you know who works at the Cancer or Lung Society or uh, you know i i, I don 't think there's any substitute for organizing in the end organizing and and media campaigning and I, and i I also do think there was some terrible luck with this whole debate when evali came along and again it 's not just luck but evali was very badly misreported on and and misdescribed and misnamed by the c d c um but that's fading into the past. Hopefully, you know, that's no longer a club that the anti-vaping people can use anymore. And the more science that pours out, I do think that, generally speaking, the more I've read, the more the arguments in behalf of uh, e-cigarettes as a harm reduction measure are stronger. The other thing that's happening is you do see innovation Um You know, I think it's interesting to watch this company, Philip Morris International, that says they're trying to to generate more and more of their money from so-called combustible free products. Or you look at what happened in Sweden. I mean, all you have to really do is open your eyes to see the complexity of this issue. And therefore, I'd say your job as a group and as individuals is to get some people who are persuadable to open their eyes and, and be persuaded. Yeah, and so, I, it was, I'll just say one more thing. I know that sounds simplistic. I know it's hard to do, but I do think it's possible. And I think if we start to see people arrested or thrown in jail for for selling flavored vapes or using flavored vapes somewhere, then again, we'll, it will be seen as perhaps the silliest And most pointless extension yet of the war on drugs which as you said alex has proven to be a pretty dismal failure you know since the nixon administration
0: yeah i and i i I don't think you're oversimplifying this i i think several of us have had the experience with you know as as you described kind of that one-on-one interaction with people Um, we've, you know, had those of us who've had the opportunity to go to DC and participate in a hill day, um, have met staffers who themselves quit smoking by switching to vaping, um, or, you know, one of their parents quit. So they, you know, the younger staffers, the actual gatekeepers to the lawmakers, um, they, they have experience with this, um, and it, and it is sort of slow to, to filter up to the actual decision makers. Um, But that that is, I think, a really good point that, um, you know, on a one to one basis, not only are these interactions that we're having with people in in officials offices, but uh, I I think, you know, Cliff Douglas is a a really excellent example of someone who uh, was, you know, working in tobacco control. And then when a family member experienced the uh, the negative outcomes of, of the, the the scare around lung injuries uh, and going back to smoking, that seems to have sort of sealed the deal for him uh, and, and and motivated him to come out publicly and, and start talking uh, in, a, in a more more positive uh, way about about vaping and and, and tobacco harm reduction. Um, so it's it's not a lost cause. Um, but it does I think require a tremendous amount of effort um, from from us and, and all of our members and, and certainly people listening here today um, to get out and have those one-on-one conversations. Um, so uh, we're down to the last five minutes here and the last four minutes. And uh, I, I want to make sure I feel like I have this has gone by quickly and that we have probably not given enough time to certain things. But before we do go, Mark, is there um, anything else, something that that, that maybe, you'd like to shed a bit more light on or, or discuss.
1: No, I don't think so. And your example of Cliff Douglas is a great one. I mean, people like that are wonderful spokespeople for your cause. And the more, you know, people like that you can recruit to the
0: cause, um, the better. Yeah. Well, um, Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you for the discussion today and thank you for your continued coverage of this issue. Um, It's vitally important that uh, we see more people like you coming in and being curious about what's going on and reporting on it um, factually. Uh, And and so all of us very much appreciate what you've been doing and and hope to see more of it. Um, And and before I, I get into the closing spiel, Danielle, Matt, anything else you wanted to chime in about?
2: No, just th- thanks, Mark, for for what you're doing, and uh, your your articles are awesome, and they give they've definitely have given me some hope here and there. I'm not saying that that was your point, but the, it's uh, it's great to see a seasoned journalist that didn't have to dip their toes into this issue, uh, take a stab at it, and and reveal lots of new information that that many of us didn't know. So we really appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you all for having me. And again, um, it's helpful to me if you follow my work on Medium. So it's just, I think, I don't know what the URL is, but if you just Google Mark Gunther and Medium and click follow, you'll be able to stay up to date on what I'm writing about this topic.
0: Fantastic. Um, definitely, we'll, uh, I think we'll probably be able to provide a link uh, somewhere in the Twitter thread associated with this. Uh, And of course, if you are a CASA member, you're going to get an email uh, reminding you that this Twitter space, in fact, did happen and that there are resources uh, in addition to what we've talked about here that you can uh, check out, get engaged with, share with your friends, spread far and wide. Uh, And so I will take this opportunity to wrap things up by saying, first and foremost, thank you again, Mark Gunther, for joining us today. Uh, this has been a great conversation, and we look forward to your coverage on this. Thank you to everyone who uh, stuck, stuck around and listened, uh, and, and hopefully thanks for spreading this to all of your friends and colleagues uh, and getting the word out beyond our echo chamber here on Twitter. Uh, and of course, special thanks to Matt Cully and Danielle Jones Board members, extraordinaire for joining and and making sure that this thing goes off without a hitch. Uh, For more information about CASA, check us out at CASAA.org. All the information and resources you need to learn about tobacco harm reduction, all different ways that you can get engaged with policymakers, comment on regulation, fight back against horrible policies at the state and local level, uh, and occasionally the federal level. We do have a budget coming up, I believe. Uh, And so we have folks like Dick Durbin pounding on the desk, uh, trying to get vapor products taxed at the same rate of cigarettes. Uh, That's something that uh, I believe that's just going to be an evergreen proposal going forward. Um, So be on the lookout for stuff like that and join CASA. It's free. There's no membership dues or anything like that. Just fill out a form and you're a member. Uh, and we will keep you up to date on all the ways to get engaged. Uh, And while you're at our website, be sure to check out our store. We have really great-looking T-shirts, ways to donate, um, advocate in style, uh, follow us, of course. You're here on Twitter, but we are also on Instagram at Casaw Media. We've got a YouTube channel at Casaw Media uh, and uh, Facebook at Casaw Media. Uh, join your state group to be up to date on things that are happening in your state. Uh, you can actually find local alerts that we don't, we haven't even seen yet, posted in in those state groups. Uh, and so, uh, just an abundance of resources for anybody who wants to get involved. And I think I said all the things. So with that, thanks again, everybody. Uh, I believe we will see you back here in two weeks. Have an excellent week.